edition of Buffet. Wednesday, September. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 6th, 2017. Light episode today. Continue to work our way through 1 Samuel. Theology of the Kingdom stuff, if you would. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to, you know, open up God's Word Heard of that thing? Yeah, in the Bible. And uh, we compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being put out there for people to consume is rotten, bad to the bone, just a total mess. Uh, So many people who um, uh, are teaching and preaching shouldn't be doing so because it's clear based upon their mangling of God's word that they have not studied, shown themselves approved as people who can rightly handle the word of truth. To kind of make this point, one of the things we do here very often here at Fighting for the Faith is that we, well, we engage in and put forward sound biblical teaching, you know, so that you can kind of do the comparing and contrasting. You go, ah, so that's what a Christ-centered approach to Scripture looks like and sounds like. That's what it looks like to properly distinguish between law and gospel and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's kind of the idea. So, uh, in you know, it's so... Let's dive into today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be heading back to Kungsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, which is the congregation that I serve. And uh, we're going to continue to uh, work our way through the book of 1 Samuel as we listen to the stories of the kingdom and let the scriptures themselves begin to define for us what is referred to regarding the kingdom of God. Today's uh, installment is a uh, is a lesson titled, The Spear Meant for Jesus. The Spear Meant for Jesus. Here we go. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we... Uh are opening up your word. We ask that you would send your spirit and help us to understand what you have revealed there so that we may rightly believe, so that we may know what to do and continue to have hope for the new world to come and the forgiveness of our sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start off with 
having us take a look at our Old Testament text from the lectionary today. And it's my job today in this opening portion to uh, see if you guys can help tease this out and give me a proper understanding of this passage. It's uh, Isaiah 56, 1, verses 6 through 8. Let me read it again. We're going to see if any of you all remember how to sort this all out. Thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness. Soon my salvation will come, my righteousness will be revealed. Verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Yahweh, Elohim, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, a little bit of a note, you can tell that this is a prophecy regarding the fact that there will be those who are not Jews who who have salvation. There's a clear eschatological horizon here, talking about worshiping on the holy mountain and things like that. But if you read this passage incorrectly, you will come to the conclusion that keeping the Sabbath is required in order for Gentiles to be saved. (laughs) Well, I mean, is this not what this text looks like it's saying? So now, say that really loud, Marilyn. Be bold. That's correct. It depends on how you define keeping the Sabbath. Now, I, I just a little bit of you know, something to bring you up to speed here. Now, we don't really have a lot of a problem with this in this area. But in other parts of the country, especially in Montana and some of the other uh, states in the Midwest, there is a heresy that is growing, and it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know if you've heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement. The, these are people who claim that they are restoring the Hebrew Roots of Christianity But in reality, what they are and what they have become are the Judaizers that Scripture warns against. And this is one of their favorite passages to point to. And they say, look, look here in this text. Foreigners are going to be saved, but everyone has to keep the Sabbath. So if you you Gentiles are required by God to keep the Sabbath, so the Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday doesn't end until sunset on Saturday. And if you do any work and you don't gather then you know, for worship on Shabbat, this is how they'll talk because that's the Hebrew word, then uh, you can't be saved. You see, you've got to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved. And you sit there and you go, okay, something's wrong with this, but the question is, what? No, the Sabbath has always been Saturday. It's the seventh day. Now, I understand the Montanians, they open carry and all that kind of stuff, but that's not really the issue. Okay, so let's, let's see if we could theologically work this out. Now, Marilyn has helped us get into the right zip code theologically. And the right zip code is, how do we understand the Sabbath? Now, if you remember, and this is why I'm doing this, because I want to see if you guys actually remember anything I teach here. We actually did a couple of Sundays over the past year and a half 
in-depth study on what the Bible teaches regarding the Sabbath. So now here's the question. Do you remember? (laughs) And the Montana folks have the problem. I just want to make sure we got that right. Okay. Yeah. It reminds me. It reminds me of this uh, of the story that is told of a pastor, and he got up one Sunday and he preached this sermon, and it was kind of one of those like hellfire brimstone, just brought brought the fire kind of thing. The next Sunday, the next Sunday, he got up and he preached the exact same sermon. Then the following Sunday, he preached the exact same sermon. Guess what he did the next Sunday? Preached the exact same sermon. Finally, finally, one of the old ladies in the church came up to him and said, Pastor, why do you keep preaching the same sermon? He says, I'll stop preaching the same sermon as soon as you guys start remembering what I say. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Sabbath. Okay. So see if you guys can remember this. How is the Sabbath, according to the New Testament, understood? How is the Sabbath kept? Now, real quick, I want, so I want you to think in the back of the book, Old Te- in New Testament, but I want you to think for a second, Old Testament for a second. What are the commands regarding the Sabbath? Is there a command to gather and worship on the Sabbath? No. What is the Sabbath? Rest. Rest. So the Sabbath is a day of rest. The Sabbath is a day when... You don't mow your lawn, you don't cook your meal, you don't turn the stove on, you, you don't do any work. The, the whole commands regarding the Sabbath are do nothing. Which, by the way, I love that command. You know, I really do. But your wife is cooking. Yeah. See, the problem is, is that my wife, um, if I were to say, honey, I know you want me to do the honeydew list, but hey, Shabbat. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. It's not going to work. Okay. It's, I'm just saying yeah, I, it, what, what will work? <laughs> what will work is not making any eye contact and saying yes, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I never have to worry about that, literally. I mean, even if my wife doesn't cook, the leftovers will make us survive for at least two weeks. So I'm just saying, you know, I, there's no chance of me starving to death anytime soon. So, And if my wife wanted to take a day off and actually go to a restaurant... I, it would, the clouds would part, the angels would be singing. It would be, you know, strange. And my, my kids understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like restaurants were forbidden. That's, you know. We know that from the Old Testament, the, the Sabbath is a day of rest. New Testament then. What does the Old Testament Sabbath actually point to? And I need a text. Mm-hmm. And we'll start the Jeopardy music anytime now. And your answer should come in in the form of a question. What is the answer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're looking for a New Testament text. Think epistles. We'll narrow the search down a little bit. It's not in the Gospels. It's going to be in the epistles. And, and, and so here's the idea. The epistles are didactic texts, which is just a fancy way of saying that they are texts that teach doctrine. And we have one, in one of the epistles 
a text that clearly explains what the Sabbath is about. Hebrews, okay, you're, you're now you're, wow, you're getting really hot. Wow, I'm impressed. All right, so now we need, we need a chapter to, to get there. Aha, there we go. So let's take a look at Hebrews 4, and that's your passage. Hebrews 4. I'll start at verse 1 because I think the whole text actually deals with this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news has come to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundations of the world, for he who has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and is active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession." For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does this chapter tell us the Sabbath is? Rest. In what sense? Mm -hmm. Is it taking a nap that's rest. I'd like one of those. Whole being, yes, it involves your whole being. But what is the rest being referred to here? Rest from works. In what context? Striving to gain our salvation. There it is. The Sabbath of the Old Testament is type and shadow of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. The true Sabbath rest is that salvation we receive from God as a gift. So the Sabbath, it must be kept in order to be saved. How do we Christians keep the Sabbath? By taking Saturday off or trusting in Christ alone for, the, for forgiveness, life, and salvation? 
the second one. And that's what Hebrews 4 here is pointing to. So the Sabbath now, and you notice it's saying, so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's rest. So right now we are in this big, long Sabbath where people are coming into the rest that is promised by God. And that is the forgiveness of their sins, salvation apart from works. Now, does that mean, now, and we've got to make this very clear. When we talk about salvation apart from works, we're not saying that works are not necessary. Good works are always necessary for every Christian. They're not necessary for salvation. And the reason why Christians do good works is because Christians are Christians. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't do good works. And what is a good work? Serving your neighbor. You know, consult Ten Commandments if you're confused. So the idea then is, is that coming back now to our Old Testament text from today, which I think is so important. So now interpret it in light of the full fullness of Scripture through the lens of Hebrews 4. Foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. Now do you see how that's understood? Jews and Gentiles enter into the Sabbath rest by grace through faith. It's salvation by grace through faith. And they keep His covenant. Which covenant? Here it's the new covenant in Christ's shed blood. These I will bring to my holy mountain, this is Mount Zion, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So here we got a promise then of Gentiles, non-Jews being saved, and they keep the Sabbath, and of course they do. Because the Sabbath was always pointing to salvation by grace through faith alone. Pretty simple. Good to review that. In the gospel, uh-huh. that would be for Jesus. Um, here, yeah, here, here's the funny thing. U- ultimately, it's going to come back to Christ. Yes. Yeah, everything comes back to him. And remember, he kept, he kept Torah perfectly for us. And so that's the wonderful thing is, is that he's the sinless one. And so he kept the Mosaic Covenant commands regarding the Sabbath perfectly. Now, we've noted, and this is worth remembering, is that nowhere in Scripture are we told that Noah or Abraham, Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, that any of these fellows kept the Sabbath because the command of the Sabbath doesn't come until the time of the Exodus. Falling back into works, yeah. No, and in this context, the book of Hebrews itself is actually written to Christians who are Hebrew. So they're, they're Hebrew in descent. And they are literally heading back to Judaism. Abandoning salvation by grace through faith alone and heading back into Judaizing, Pharisaical works righteousness. And so this is the whole context of this epistle is against that. And that's the context where disobedience comes in. Good question, by the way. Along the same line, the same verse says it starts off by saying, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest which the Lord may call. Yeah. The word strive kind of implies you know, something on our part. How do you explain? Okay, good question. Okay, so 
So striving here, there's a context in which it comes in, and this requires us to do a little bit of anthropology. Anthropology, kind of the study of man. That's a big highfalutin word. So when we talk about humanity, we can talk about humanity prior to the fall. Prior to Adam and Eve thinning, did humans have the ability to have, to make, to choose things as in regards to God and each other? Yes, they did. So you can say in that sense, they had free will. After the fall, humans do not have free will towards God, but they have free will towards how we treat each other. And God then, there's another category because of of, uh, Christian understanding of how uh, salvation works, that when somebody is brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Scripture says that they are regenerated, that there is a new man in them. So the Christian is different than the non-Christian, which is why when we read our epistles, Christians are explicitly exhorted to mortify the sinful flesh and its passions and to excel and strive in good works for neighbor and to continue to protect and guard the faith that has been entrusted to them. So the Christian then has some free will in regards to to God, which is different than somebody who is unregenerate. So when you see Scripture talking about us striving, so what's the striving then in this case? Striving to continue to believe and trust in the promises of God and not mix that with false doctrine or works righteousness or things like that. So we as Christians, we strive by guarding what has been entrusted to us. We strive in good works. We strive in mortifying the flesh. And all of this is what we are called to do by God. So this is why we are warned in Scripture against false doctrine and also following after our sinful passions. And the the Scriptures always and again assume that as Christians that we participate in our sanctification, guarding our faith, stewarding it, feeding you know, feeding ourselves on God's word, being fed by coming to church, and not listening to false doctrine or heading off into um, into sinful vice. The word strive here, it seems to make me feel that it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. No, it's not. Um, it's it's as easy as coming to church every Sunday. Is that hard at times though? Yeah. Right, right. I'll, I'll be blunt. It's easy for me to come to church now because I get paid. <laughs> I'm the only one of you paid to be here right now. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, back before I was a pastor, it would be... Yeah. It, it, before I was a pastor, it would be really easy to sit there and go, oh my goodness, last night was terrible. The kids were screaming. The, the, the bloody murder happened. Barb was unhappy. I just want to sleep in. It would be really easy to do that. You know, and what's the hard thing? Get up, get the kids dressed. I would leave the brushing of the hair to Barb because if it were left to me, weird things would happen. <laughs> we have photographs to prove it. Just look at, if you want to see that, just look at Christina's kindergarten photo. But when Barb saw it, the words out of her mouth were, What happened? <laughs> First words, What happened? It was my job that day. Anyway. All the drama that is that exists in you know in a very active household, and it would just be easier just to stay home and turn on the television and watch football. It really would. 
And this is where our sinful nature wants to go. Or it would be really easy in another sense, and this is this will step on a little bit of toes, but it would be really easy to sit there and go to a church where the pastor is not doing his job. He's preaching false doctrine. He's not rightly handling God's word. You're not being fed. And it would be easy for you to sit there and say, well, we've always gone to church here. My family's gone here for five generations. Why should I switch churches? And yet you're not being fed God's word by the fellow who's in the pulpit. If that happens, you've got to do the tough thing. You've got to get rid of that guy and get somebody who's going to do their job. Or change churches. You, you, you've had to do that. So the, the striving here is understanding that salvation is a gift. And it's a gift that's stewarded in, sim, in a similar way that our lives are stewarded. You didn't ask to be born, but here you are. You know, you're breathing and you're walking upright. And this entire life of yours, I'm assuming that you haven't been out parachuting without a you know, parachute. That you've you know, been trying to eat right and exercise and you know, take care of yourself. Not drive like a bat out of you know the bowels of Hades, you know, and obey the laws and things like that. <laughs> okay, some of you maybe not. Okay, but you're lucky to be here. But so the idea here is is that life is a gift and it's stewarded. It's stewarded by eating right, obeying the laws, taking care of yourself, and things like that. Does that make sense? And our faith is in a similar way. So the striving here looks like that same stewarding of the gift of life that you have physically. It's the gift of life that you have spiritually now that you strive and steward to stay in that salvation by grace through faith. I hope that answers your question. It's, it's not that we're saved by these works, but these, this gift is stewarded. And that takes, takes some effort. It takes kind of paying attention to things. All right, with the time that's left... I want to circle back from last week's text, and I want to look at, we're going to do the hermeneutical spiral again, and I want to look at two things as far as biblical typology is concerned in the story of Saul and David and Jonathan, and note the very interesting parallels here. And so we're in uh, 1 Samuel 19, and we're going to go back through... And I want to look at verse, starting at verse 8. And here's what it says regarding David and Saul. There was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. One of the things I continue to kind of really harp on and really tease out in Scripture is this concept of biblical typology, that we can see snippets, if you would, type and shadow that points us to Jesus in these stories. And this is one that is easily missed, but if you kind of work through the text, you can kind of see how the typology works. And so the idea is, is you'll note that when I'm always looking in the text to find something that I can draw it back to Christ, especially in the Old Testament. How can I pull this back and bring Jesus in, into this? So we've already noted that David is the anointed, not yet coronated king of Israel. So at this point, he is a Mashiach. He's a Messiah. He's an anointed one. 
And what's really fascinating, David being a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, here we have Saul who's behaving quite demonically, and it even says that he's being tormented by an evil spirit, that he wants to take a spear and run David through with it. How can we relate that back to Christ? There you go. The spear piercing Jesus' side on the cross. I think a good way to think about this. Over and again, Saul wants to spear David. And he keeps missing. And if you sit there and go, well, why does he keep missing? Answer, because that spear is not meant for David. That spear is meant for Christ. Isn't that interesting? You kind of, you kind of work it that way. So there's no way to spear David in this sense. Because that spear is to be reserved for the one to whom it will hit, and he will be pierced by it, and that's Christ. And so Jesus dead on the cross. He has that Roman spear thrust into his side. And what comes out of it? Blood and water. Kind of typologically then, what can you do? You know, how can you tie that back with some other details in Scripture? I know another fellow in the Scripture who had his side opened up. Adam. Right. So kind of worth the typology here. Adam had his side opened up. And what is it that was created from his side? Woman, his bride. Now kind of work this out. Jesus Christ, when he's pierced, out comes blood and water. That's significant because it's through water and Christ's blood that the church is created, which is the bride of Christ. So these kind of little details here, what's really fun, and, and, and this is one of the things I really love to do, is t- t- take these little details, because they're not throwaway. They're really not throwaway details. And ask the question, how can I relate this back to Jesus? Because what you're doing when you're doing that is you're kind of... It, you, you ever been on a website where, you know, in the middle of the text they have a hyperlink, and the hyperlink takes you to another story that's, that's related to this one, and then you click another hyperlink? The biblical typology are like hyperlinks. So when you see in motif elements that, you know, you sit there and go, okay, I know there's a spear in the story of Jesus. What is that re- what, how does that relate to here? kind of a similar idea, and then you can start to kind of flesh out, just start hyperlinking because these typologies all kind of fold in together, and what it does is it focuses our eyes over and again back on Christ and what he has done for us. And this is how Scripture wants us to read it because Jesus himself has said so clearly that the Scriptures are about him. They're about him. But because we're sinners, we like to read ourselves into the biblical text. You know, how would you somehow come up with an application? You know, you know, there's Saul. He wants to pin David to the wall with a spear. So what's the application for you? It's a tough, right. So call OSHA. It doesn't quite work. What about the people who lived 100 years ago or 50 years ago who didn't have working standards like that in their work environment? They didn't have an HR department, which, by the way, I believe many HR departments are actually from Hades, but that's a different story. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I noticed I didn't say all. I just said most or many. <laughs> but see, it doesn't work then. When you make it about you, now the text doesn't make sense.
All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lesson on the spear meant for Jesus as we work our way through 1 Samuel, pointing out how it points right to Jesus. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Come in. Hello, I'm here for my two o'clock appointment. Yes, Mrs. Staley, is it? That's me. Have a seat. So, what is it I can do for you today? I was hoping that I could upgrade my prayer account today. That is excellent. Let me just look up your information. It looks like you've been with us for about three years. That's right. And you're currently a member of a spiritual growth prayer package. Yes. Well, that's not good. What's not good? It says here that your account even after three years of accumulated dream interest, is still classified at a micro-prayer level. What does that mean? It means that your current dream-destiny balance is non-existent. It, it says that you've experienced zero spiritual growth. That's very disturbing. There must be some kind of mistake. Well, we can easily fix this. I'm just going to pull up your pre-appointment questionnaire. Okay. It says here that you pray at least four to six times a week. That's good. You tie 10% of your income to your local church. That's very good. You're happily married. You have two children and... Oh. What's oh? Well, in the career box, you've put an A. Well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. So what you're saying is that you don't have a real job. It certainly feels like a real job to me. Okay, then... So, what can we do to fix my account balance? For starters, we'll go over your current dream projections for the next fiscal church year. That'll give us a baseline to work from. So, what are your big plans for this year? Well, I'm currently trying to potty train my two-year-old by summertime. Uh-huh. I'm trying to grow my own vegetables in my back garden. Okay... And my husband and I are also saving up money to fix our roof. Well, then, that explains a lot. What do you mean? It's painfully clear to me that you're simply not dreaming big enough. Not big enough? Well, the doy, 
potty training, vegetables, and roofs are chump change and are simply unworthy of a mega prayer account. Oh, so what do you suggest I do? Well, first things first, you're going to need to get a real career. It really doesn't matter as long as it's related with fame, fortune, or glory. Uh... Secondly, you need to rid yourself of these pathetic micro-prayers. God doesn't have time to listen to such puny little things. What would be your current dream car? Probably a minivan, so I could have enough room for the kids and groceries. <clears throat> I think I just threw it in my mouth a little bit. <sighs> okay, instead of a <clears throat> minivan... Uh, why not pray for a Maserati? I couldn't afford the insurance. That's what the career is for. See, you're so trapped by your own micro-dreams that you can't see your potential. I don't want a career. I love being a stay-at-home mom. <coughs> I can't believe what I'm hearing. No wonder you've experienced zero spiritual growth. I bet you're the type of person that prays for daily bread and, and for the forgiveness of their sins. Why, yes, actually. Get out of my office! This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today.
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is about Jesus. And the reason for that is because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.00. 95 cents a month after that gunners made at 24.95 a month from there master gunner at 49.95 a month or quartermaster at 99.95 a month joining our crew is a great way to support us of course if you'd like to make a one-time contribution you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's episode as we listen to a lecture from First Samuel about the spear that was meant for Jesus. Here we go. I want to show you another element from last week's text, and this is in First Samuel 20, and I'm going to reread the story. And I, th- when you see the New Testament parallel to this, it's amazing. So here, here's, here it is, here's what it is. Uh, David fled from Nahioth in Ramah, came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So note David here is confessing his innocence. Has he done anything deserving death? You see, now you, you, see, you can see where we're going. But just watch how this works. So he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as Yahweh lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I shall not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. Okay, we noted last week that third day stuff. Isn't it fascinating how that you just over, you you start seeing these things, you're going, Weird. Hmm. So, if your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, 
Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they went. They both went out into the field. Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, the God of Israel, be witness. So here they're going to make a covenant, and God is the witness of this covenant. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then spend, send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, Yahweh do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord, may Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of Yahweh that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And we noted here last week, and I'll just reiterate the point, that here, Jonathan, although he is the the crown prince, he's the next in line to be the king of Israel according to the lineage of Saul, he has abdicated his right to the throne and recognizes that David is the rightful anointed king and that God had made him such. And so back in the ancient world when a king would come into power, first thing that they would do, they would kill their enemies. It's kind of a brutal thing. It, it, you know, any, any rivals to the throne, whether they be old or young, were oftentimes executed as, you know, to make it so that this person's kingdom was established. Jonathan, recognizing that, he's making a covenant, and he says, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may Yahweh take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul." Now, we also noted that the disciple whom Jesus loved is named John. So there's a a little bit of an interplay here with the New Testament. But then the the interplay gets a little bit more interesting. Jonathan said to him, to David, Tomorrow's the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, hmm, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. So you're going to notice, David's hiding in a field for three days, and there's a stone heap. Come on, this this, this is just like, it has like resurrection, Christ's death in the tomb kind of typology going on here. You can kind of, it's just, it's a little thin, but you sit there and go, that sounds a little bit like, you know, and it does. Says, I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. Behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come for Yahweh, as Yahweh lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for Yahweh has sent you away. And as for the matter of, of which you and I have spoken, behold, Yahweh is between you and me forever." So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. He is clean and stopped calling him Shirley. 
But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers for this reason. He has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That's quite the curse. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Note the focus of Saul. Surely send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Full pause. Where have you heard these words before? Uh huh. And there's your cross reference. Let me pull it up in my Bible real quick. It's, we're going to be in Matthew 27. I'm going to start at verse 15. Let me pull it up over here, though. And I want you to watch this. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. Matthew 27. We'll start at verse 15. Let me make this big enough so that I can read it. Now, the feast, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's almost verbatim Jonathan's plea to his father. Why? What evil has he done? Why should he die? Pilate protesting in the exact same way. And so you'll see then that David, and this is where the typology will break down. David gets to go free this time. But just like the spear that eventually will hit Christ, Christ doesn't get to go free. In David's account, he's innocent and God vindicates him and he is permitted to be the one who goes free. Now, he's going to be on the run. He's going to be every Saturday night, John Walsh is getting up on you know, Israel's most wanted. Have you seen David? You know, they're after him. He looks like this, you know. You've seen him, he's riding a horse. Here's him with a sword in his hand. Here's him with a bag of 200 Philistine foreskins, which is weird currency. But you kind of get the idea. 
So over and again, that, you know, but David is going to get to go free this time, just like he's not the one who's going to get pinned. But all of this then comes back to Christ. And so we hear in the words of Jonathan, the words of Pilate. Why? What has he done? What has he done? And them shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, the Messiah does perish. He does die. He doesn't get away. But isn't it fascinating when you start connecting Christ and David together, you can see in type and shadow some of Christ's very suffering and passion. David himself gets a measure of that in his own life, but he's permitted to go free and he has to go free because he's the ancestor. He's not the Messiah. He's the ancestor of him. But when you connect it all together, you sit there and go, man, this typology stuff is really prophetic. It, it's there's too many coincidences, too many parallels that it can't be thrown away. And at the same time, you, you kind of have to hang on to it loosely. Does that make sense? You, you don't dogmatically sit here and say, that's the only way to un- understand this. No, you, you look at this and you go, man, I, I can't help but see when I read about David. There's so many weird things that just keep coming back to Christ. Jonathan's words are echoed in Pilate. They are totally echoed, almost verbatim. And you go, that can't be a coincidence. You see it? Yeah? Yeah? All right. I'm going to end a little early today. I'm going to just pause it right there. Because that's kind of the, you know, I, I, I wanted to get the Sabbath, I wanted to get the spear, wanted to get the, the Jonathan speech. And when you see it all together, you know, those, are, those are good three lessons, you know, in kind of biblical typology and how to pull everything back to Christ. All right. We'll see you guys next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.